Okay, it's beautiful to see you all, your beautiful faces, and we are continuing the series that uh, we started a few weeks ago on Leaning on Omnipotence, which is quite a fancy title. It comes from a quote by M.W.S. Bowden, who said that prayer is weakness leaning on omnipotence. Omnipotence obviously speaks of God's power, and so it's us and our weakness and our frailties, these jars of clay leaning on God, and uh, it's just an important part of our, our Christian life. And we're uh, going to pick up in Matthew chapter 6. If you're wondering why I'm two-toned, we had some baptisms earlier this morning, and I forgot to roll my sleeve up before I helped with the baptism. And so we had the great privilege of seeing five people baptized. Uh, some of you would have been here before to see that. It is amazing. And, um, and so if you've got your Bibles, please, why don't you turn to Matthew chapter 6. And I want to read from verse 9. This is a passage of Scripture where, which is often called the Lord's Prayer. And it's not that Jesus prays it, it's that he, taught, he gave it to us and he taught us how to pray using this prayer. And so from verse 9, it goes like this, Jesus speaking. It says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts or transgressions or sins as we also have forgiven our debtors or those that have sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And that goes on in this passage. That's the end of the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. But in the very next verses, Jesus expounds a little bit of some of the implications of the prayer to us. In verse 14 and 15, he says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. There's a quote I'm going to read in a little bit, and it starts off by saying, this is a hard word, and it truly is a hard word. If you've been hurt before or betrayed, if you've been the victim of somebody else's behavior and been left with an, an incredible sense of injustice, then the thought of forgiving someone is not an easy thing to do. And the command by Jesus that we should forgive others is difficult for us to actually process. It becomes even harder when it seems in this passage of Scripture that Jesus might be saying that if we don't forgive other people, that we somehow forfeit our salvation or we forfeit our relationship with God. Before we get into what he is saying, I want, you, I want to kind of put this in context and get you to picture something that's a little bit easier for you to imagine. So just for a moment, close your eyes if you don't mind. I'm going to ask you to imagine a married couple, a husband and a wife, and maybe it's your mom and your dad, or maybe it's you and your wife, or whatever it is. I want you to see them maybe sitting around a dinner table. Now I want you, in your imagination, to assert into that relationship an offense that is so difficult for that couple that the wife cannot forgive the husband, or the husband cannot forgive the wife. I want you to think about the dynamics of, of what's been inserted, that offense, begins to impact their relationship, how it affects their day-to-day -day communication with each other, their intimacy, their trust, their joy. All of it is disturbed and disrupted. And even as you picture them, remember this, that even though there is this unforgiveness and this, this um, something that has come in the way of their relationship, they remain husband and wife. You can open your eyes again. And the same way when there's unforgiveness between a father and a child or a mother and a child, 
um, the, the, they remain the children of those parents, even if there's unforgiveness, even if there are relational things that need to be worked out. There's an author by the name of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle who wrote the Sherlock Holmes stories, and he put these words into the mouth of that great detective, Sherlock Holmes. He said, once you've ruled out, we see, he says, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. And so he was obviously solving murders and things like that. We are trying to understand the truth of the Scripture. But actually, this is quite a good tool for understanding how to interpret Scripture. We, we can see from the rest of Scripture that there is something that Jesus cannot be saying here. He cannot be saying that if we don't forgive, we lose our salvation. Or we cannot be saved if we hold on to unforgiveness. And the reason is because throughout the rest of Scripture, in the teachings of Jesus, in the epistles, and even... Um, as the Old Testament prophets prophesy, it becomes clear to us that salvation is something that we are given. It's a gift that we receive from God and that we cannot work to earn our salvation nor can we work to keep our salvation. Romans 1 verse 16 to 17 is a good example of this. Paul writing and he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And then listen to verse 17. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now when Paul uses the word righteousness there, he doesn't mean like my, my good outweighs my bad. I'm doing pretty well in this journey. Or I'm more righteous than, than Geraldine. Because, I mean, what kind of standard would that be? Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's like these are random standards that we put in place. But actually what he's saying is that we are we have received a righteousness that is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's been given to us. And he says it comes, it's, it's by faith from first to last, not by works. In this instance, Paul is contrasting works with faith. Faith is a means by which we receive that which is freely offered to us. Paul goes on in, in another letter in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, and he makes it so clear that our salvation is the work of Jesus Christ when he says this, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Like I mean, about five times he makes it so clear in this passage in case we were confused. It is by grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, not our expense. We paid no price for our salvation. It is, it is free for us, though it costs God everything. Through faith, that's the means by which we receive it, and it's not from yourselves. Not what You did nothing to earn it. I can't say because I'm born again and my brother's not that maybe I'm more humble than my brother because then it would somehow rest upon me. Or maybe I'm more inquisitive than my brother or more. Whatever it is that I could put in place, I would be able to say, actually, there's something about me that makes me more worthy of salvation than the person down the road or that person there. But God says, actually, you've got no basis for boasting at all. And so... God is the one who took the initiative. When we were still his enemies, the Bible says, he sent his son to die for us. And it's, it wasn't because we had done anything, friends. We were, we were the mortal enemies of God when he sent his son. And Jesus, in loving obedience and love for us, made them the ultimate sacrifice in laying his life down. And as we sang in that song today, that he took on our sin, he carried our shame, so that we wouldn't have to bear the punishment that our sin deserved. And I think most of you would agree that forgiving someone actually is a work. I mean, in some ways, it would be easier to give away money than to forgive people who have hurt us. 
I mean, I don't know about you. I can. I remember specific situations where people have treated me unjustly. I battle uh, particularly with injustice. I, I hate being falsely accused or being cheated. And 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 I and I can remember this like very real sense inside of me that I wanted it to be made right. And if somebody said to me in that situation, just let them off. I said. Say, for example, it, it, was, it had to do with 500 dirham or something like that. I would say, I don't care about the money. This is wrong what's taking place here. And so it would be easy if I was going to write out checks and I could say, well, that's, that's all I needed to do. Like, yes, you know, 1,000 dirham to the dolphin, save the dolphin foundation or for the puppy's home or whatever it is like that. Like, that would be easy to do, write out money. But to forgive somebody that has hurt me or betrayed me or... Um, those, that, that would be like a major sacrifice. And if that's what my salvation depended upon, then I would be able to say, you know what? I, you know, I, I forgave Noel. I did that. So I deserve my salvation because I forgave him. Dylan couldn't forgive Royston. That's why he can't get his salvation. Can you see that if it is forgiveness, then it's a form of work and we would have some basis for boasting in. And clearly that is not the case. So how do we explain what's going on here? How can Jesus say this when it seems so clearly to point to our salvation and yet it not be a contradiction? And I want to speak about something that's truly so important in Scripture that we need to grasp. I've, I've, if you've been at World of Life any length of time, you've probably heard me speak about this before. But it, it bears repeating and reinforcing because it actually is so important that our salvation is past, present, and future. We, are, we, have this, um, we have these different aspects to our salvation. It's one thing, we are saved, but there's a past aspect to it, a present aspect, and a future aspect. Why don't you put the slide up? And you can see that there's a point in your life, if you, have, if you already are a follower in Jesus Christ, where you put your faith in Jesus. For me, uh, it was when I was 13 years old, so 20 years ago, I put my faith in Jesus Christ. Those that are doing maths are realizing that I'm, I've got something to repent of now, because I lied as well. However many years ago it was, I put my faith in Jesus Christ. The day that I did that, to the, to, if it was sincere and if my faith was saving faith, what I received was I received redemption. It was done. I was redeemed. I was reconciled. I was justified. I was um, sanctified. And, I, um, and my sin was propitiated. And I don't have time to go into all of what that means. But it means that my sin was dealt with completely. That has taken place. That was some time in the past for me. I don't need to go revisit that again. It's one of the reasons when we, why would we do it, put out an invitation for those that are wanting to come into a saving relationship with Christ. We make the point that um, this is not a, about a recommitment to Jesus. This is not like you had a bad week, like you didn't have your quiet time or you stole a whole, you know, a whole pack of pencils from work or something like that. And so you're back again on Sunday. Well, please, I need to be saved again. I, I, was, I was born again before, but now I need to be born again again. And then next week, you need to be born again, again, again. And the week after that, again, 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 again. You, and, you know, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says to him, how can a man once more enter into his mother's womb and be born again? In the natural, there's only one birth. and the spiritual, there's one birth as well. We become a new creation. We don't become an uncreation after that and then have to become a new creation again. And so what took place has taken place. That's in the past and that's settled. And so whatever Jesus is teaching, he's not teaching that this salvation that has already been given to us is going to be removed from us. We've received it by uh, through grace. It's the finished work of Jesus that makes it possible for us to have that. And it's the finished work of Jesus that keeps it. 
And that's why that text in Philippians 1, 6 is so important. That he who has begun a good work in you will what? Bring it to completion. See, he's begun it. He will bring it to completion. It says in, I think it's Hebrews 12, that he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He's the one that writes our faith story and he will bring it to completion. Great is he that is in me than he that is in the world, that we are in the hands of the Father and no one can snatch us out of his hands. And that, like, I love the truth of this, that no matter what comes my way, I may hit some pits, I may hit some great highs, I may go on a detour, I pray God that I don't, but if I do, it doesn't matter, the Lord will always bring me back like the prodigal, I cannot live in a pigsty, I have to come back to the Father no matter what, and that might be you, and you might be thinking, well, I've drifted so far from Jesus, and I've done this, and I've done that, if you were born again and saved, then you come back to the Father like the prodigal came back, and He welcomes you like the Father welcomed Him. But though there's this past aspect, there's a present aspect to our salvation as well, that we've got to walk it out. And, and the, the Bible, it's so wonderful that it says that we have been sanctified, and in the other verses it says we are being sanctified. That means we, like sometimes people think sanctification is like, I've got to get here, like this is, this is a good Christian, like somebody that's really holy, like I've got to get there before I die, because if I don't quite get there, ah, if I die just before I get to that holy place, I'm going to miss out on my mark. No, no, you, you, you've already got 100% on your exam. God wants you to study. He wants you to apply yourself. He wants you to, to, to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. He wants you to put to death the sins of the flesh. But even as you go along, you're guaranteed 100% at the time that God calls you home. But we progressively becoming more like Jesus Christ. That's what sanctification means. And so we are, um, and we'll see that as we unpack this verse a little bit as we go on. So it doesn't speak about the loss of our salvation. Oh, one last thing, our future, the future aspect of our salvation. I love this life. I think it's amazing. I love what God's given us. But if this is heaven, oh my word. If I've got to wrestle with this flesh for all eternity, if I've got to wrestle with your flesh for all eternity, your, like my selfishness is bad enough, but dealing with your selfishness, that's like, like this is not heaven, this side. I will be so grateful one day when God removes from me this body of flesh and gives me a resurrected body and those battles with the flesh I no longer have. I'll be so grateful when I don't have to look around and see injustice, human trafficking and, and corrupt governments and, 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 and oppression taking place around me. That, like, we are saved, but friends, there's a part of our salvation that is still to come that is more glorious than we have ever imagined. And there's a, we should look forward to that with great joy and expectation. I was thinking about how um, one of the, the songs that the slaves in, in America would sing was Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. There they were in slavery and oppressed and facing brutality. And they were saying, what they were saying was, bring the future part of my salvation, Lord. The chariot that came down to sweep Elijah up, come down and sweep me up. Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, and take me home to be with God. Because there is a glorious future in store for us that none of us can even comprehend. Um, anyway, that's... <laughs> So in this prayer, Jesus is teaching us two things, and I just want to go through those two, is that Christians still need forgiveness from God when they sin. Now, I've said that all of our sin is forgiven, past, present, and future. If you're sitting there now thinking, I wish this guy would finish, that's a sin, okay? But you're forgiven even of that sin. Um, and the sin that you're committing now, the sin that you'll commit tomorrow has already been forgiven in Jesus Christ. What I'm talking about here is not our salvation forgiveness. I'm talking about our sanctification or our forgiveness as a part of our process of sanctification. 
In 1 Thessalonians 4.3, Paul says that the, it's the will of God is our sanctification. That's what God wants, is for us to become more like Jesus. That's what He wants. And then He says, look, I don't want you to be caught up in sexual immorality or to be caught up in the, in the lusts of the flesh or be hurtful or harmful to the people around you. And what He's saying is, I want your life to be marked increasingly by holiness and by love. And so here I am, I meet Jesus Christ. As I go on this journey of life, um, some ups, some downs, whatever like this, I'm becoming more like Jesus. I should be more like Jesus this year than I was last year. By the end of the year, I should be more like Jesus than I am at this moment, although it's not a straight line, we understand that. The experience of every Christian that has ever lived is that we are not perfect. Amen? If you, it's, it's just the reality. We know that. If, you, if you've got any sort of self-awareness, you know that about yourself. But even if you don't have self-awareness about yourself, you see it in other people. The more technologically we progress as humanity, the more gross our sins seem to get. We, we, we don't figure our way out of this. We've got psychologists with letters after their names like this who are taking their own lives. They know everything you can possibly know about the human mind and everything else and emotions, and they still are without hope. We are sinful and lost, and we need the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us that even Christians, though we are saved, are not perfected. Amen. And so what happens is, in this progressive work, as I'm journeying, the Holy Spirit comes alongside of me. And when I sin, it says He convicts me of my sin. Now, if English is not your first language, and even if it is your first language, people get confused by the word convict. Because they think it means like a judge convicts you, slams the hammer and says, okay, six months in prison for drunken driving or whatever it is, you're convicted. It's not that. What it speaks of here is, is the Holy Spirit sh shining a light on our sin. He's, he's pulling the veil back. It's our human nature to cover up sin. I don't know, whenever a sportsman's caught cheating, taking drugs or whatever it is, the first thing they do is, no, no, I didn't. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. Okay, I did, eventually. Once, once the information is overwhelming. When a politician is caught, no, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. Okay, I did. Even pastors, when they're caught, the first thing they is, no, no, it wasn't me, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. Okay, it was me. Like this. That's our nature. We want to cover up. We want to preserve ourselves. And the Holy Spirit in His kindness comes and He shines a light and uncovers our sin, and that brings a, con a, a, con a sense of conviction in our heart. It feels like shame, or it feels like sorrow. It, it's, it feels uncomfortable. Our conscience is alerted, is, is activated, and we have this, like, this doesn't feel good to me. This is not what I'm enjoying. And so the Holy Spirit, having highlighted that thing, then invites us to work with Him to, um, to deal with that. And, and by, by that, it means that we come in repentance to God. Proverbs 28 verse 13 says this, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. So, like I said, it's our human nature to conceal our sin. We've done something, if I can just, and we conceal it in so many different ways. Maybe we just try and hide it. Maybe we threaten the person that, uh, you know, like whatever, however we would do that, or we rationalize it, or we blame somebody. Like, Maybe I shouted at Linda, and I go to be with the Lord, and I said, Lord, I want to come and confess. And then I go, actually, you know, Lord, that I think, now that I think about it, actually, it was Linda's fault. I, I did shout, but if she hadn't done, and I listen, actually, Father, I'm coming to confess Linda's sin to you today. I'm asking that you forgive her. And that's in our nature. Like, we, we want to conceal it, and we conceal it in all these different ways. It's not my fault. Everybody's doing it. 
like it's not my fault. But she was so hot. What could I do? Like a hotness overwhelmed me. It wasn't my fault, whatever it was. But it says he will not prosper. He will not have abundant life. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and life more abundantly. Friends, to live with guilt and shame and hiding and, and, and without the freedom and the confidence that the righteousness of Christ gives us is not to, live, is not to prosper. And then he says, if you confess and forsake your sin. So it's not just going up and going, you know, sitting behind that veil thing and going, hey, Father, although you shouldn't call the guy Father because that's what the Bible says. But anyway, hey, Father, I've sinned. What did you do? You know, I stole Granny's cookies and, um, okay, we'll say three Hail Marys and do this. Now, I'm not mocking. I'm just saying to go through a motion, to go through a ritual is not what's going to bring us. The Bible says we need to forsake us and I'll get into that in a moment. It says if we do that, we will find compassion. In the New Testament, that means we will find forgiveness, we'll find mercy, we'll find acceptance from God. Remember I said that when we are a married couple and there's unforgiveness, it, it messes up our relationship. We're still married, but it messes up the relationship. When we've got um, sin between us and God and we haven't confessed it, we're still the children of God. We're still born again, but it messes up our relationship with God. And so it brings us to probably one of the most important scriptures in practical Christian living, which is 1 John 1 verse 9. And you guys know this verse because I've quoted like a million times. It's one of my favorite verses, so just say it. There we go. If you can, oh, it's on the screen. <laughs> you go. Yes. Okay, I'm going to give you a moment to repent. Go for it. If, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If, that means we have a choice. We don't have to confess our sins. We can keep it covered up if we want to. But God says that if we will confess our sins, and it, it's so unbelievably important that we see there that it doesn't say he is loving and merciful or he is loving and kind. He doesn't say that because God was loving and merciful and kind 2,000 years ago when Jesus died upon the cross. That's the basis of our forgiveness. He's, he's been loving and kind. The act of, of sending a son was the greatest act of love that the world could ever imagine and can ever know. God cannot love us more than by sending a son to die for us. And so God, when we come to God now, we don't say, look, I you know, sometimes when I, I, I sin against Linda, I'm, I'm, I don't know what kind of mood she's going to be and whether she's just going to forgive me like this or whether she's going to feel like she's got to help God a little bit and, and punish me. Do you know what I mean? Like, so Linda's generally a very forgiving person, as you can imagine being married to someone like me. But if I go to Linda and say, hey, I, like I've done this, I'm, like if I knew 100% that she would forgive me, like no matter what, and I'm, if I'm sincere, obviously, I would have such a confidence to come to her. Like no matter, like, Baby, I've done this. I'm, I'm genuinely sorry. And I'll, I'll do what's necessary to restore it and fix it and stuff like that. But I want you to know that I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely, sincerely repentant of what's happened. And if Linda just said, if there was a guarantee that she would go, Rob, I love you. You are forgiven. Come here. You, there are things you need to do, but I love you. Whatever it is like this. But if I knew that I was going to come to God and he was going to go, actually, do you know what you've done? Do you know, do you know what you, I think you need to go to your, your room? And go think about this for a little while before you come back here. And then in three or four days' time, when I finish sulking or angry or whatever it is that I need to do to make sure that you understand the severity of your sin, then I'm going to release you from your sin. God isn't like that. The Bible says He is faithful and just because our forgiveness is based on what has already been done in Jesus Christ's death upon the cross and His resurrection. And so if God were not to forgive us, He would be unfaithful and unjust. And He cannot be unfaithful 
and unjust. So we know, friends, that no matter what we've done, we can come to the Father and you are guaranteed forgiveness. Guaranteed. It is done deal. That doesn't mean we, we blase about it. It doesn't mean we kind of go, hey, whatever, Lord, you know, I did this thing. It does, it just like, no, no. The Bible says that godly sorrow leads to repentance and repentance to life without regrets. And so there's a, there's a genuine remorse as the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. And we come to the Father and we confess it. But it doesn't matter how many times you sin, you keep coming back to the Father. I remember counseling a guy um, at uh, the church in South Africa years ago, and he was caught in a, in a cycle of sin. And he said, I don't know what to do. I said, you need to repent of your sin. He said, I've repented. I said, repent again. So he went to the Lord, repent. He said, I sinned again. He said, well, go repent again. He said, I can't do that. I feel like a hypocrite. I said, you cannot break the cycle unless you keep going to the Father to repent. And some of you repented once or twice or three times or four times, and now you're actually too embarrassed to go to God to even repent again of that sin. But God actually, He's doing a work continually in your life every single time you bring it to Him. And some of us will repent of the same sin type a thousand times in our lifetime, whether it's impatience or anger or lust or this or that or the next thing. We're not going to get over it once. We're going to have to go to the Father again and again. And the confidence we have is that He will forgive us. And then it says that He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's something powerful, and this is why I say it's part of our sanctification process. Here I am. I'm caught in this sin. Maybe it's a sin. Of, let's just say um, uh, uh, it's lust. So I, 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 there's some act of lust that I carry out. And so I go to the Father and I say, Lord, Father, I want to confess my sin to you. Won't you forgive me for the sin? And the Father comes in and He does forgive me. He restores my relationship with Him. So there's no distance. I don't feel like I've got to be embarrassed when I walk into the house. Imagine you were caught doing some thing that you shouldn't be caught in your bedroom as your parents walked into the bedroom. Um, you can, whatever comes to your mind. So your parents walk in, they see you doing this, they close the door like this. Now what are you going to do? You're, like, like, like you, you're so embarrassed. We don't have to be embarrassed with the Father. Because He forgives us. He restores the relationship. He reminds us, you are my boy, you are my girl. And so we come into this, and God then, He cauterizes that area of sin in our life, where the power is reduced. And sometimes it's radical, it's like this. The deeper the repentance, I believe, the deeper the cauterizing work that takes place. He, he, um, what does it say? He cleanses us from unrighteousness. I can remember the one time I went to the Lord, and there was an area of sin in my life, and it had repeated a few times, and I'd repented and repented. And I actually kept a journal so that I couldn't confuse myself of how often I'd repented. Like I could go back and say, I, I, there I had to repent, there I had to repent, there I had to repent. So I knew what was going on. I wasn't trying to fool myself. But I realized the one day as I sinned that I would, I'd lost, um, I wasn't really, I didn't have a godly sorrow. I knew it was wrong because I knew it was wrong, but I didn't have a godly sorrow about the sin. And I said, Father, please, um, don't let your Holy Spirit lift off of me this conviction until this time as it's done a deep work in my heart with regard to this sin. And I sat under the ache and the, and the, the anguish, as it were, of that work, that deep work of the Holy Spirit in me, and I repented deeply, and the God set me free. He actually cleansed me from the unrighteousness of that sin in my life. And so can you see how these things hold together? On the one side, we guaranteed forgiveness, and on the other side, we've got to make sure our repentance is deep and true as we come to the Father. Makes sense, guys. But Jesus doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just stop with um, that we need to confess our sins so that we can be forgiven. He says to us we've got to forgive other people as well. And He expects us to forgive other people for two compelling reasons. Firstly is that our Christian life is not meant to be something moralistic or legalistically pure. Like, 
I'm living such a, a good life and, and um, that's all that matters. Like I'm keeping all the rules. I'm like a robot. I pray 30 minutes a day. I read my Bible four chapters a day. I give 10% of my money. I wave at the people that cut me off in traffic. I mean, I, I'm just like, I'm, just, I'm living this great life. But actually he wants us to live a life that mimics his son. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says that we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. And that means that we live with the same love and mercy um, towards others as God lives towards us. We need to reflect Christ to the world out there. Somebody once said this, if we are revengeful, resentful, unforgiving, how can the world learn from us the sweetness, the freeness, and the fullness of the divine forgiveness? Isn't that powerful? And it's, it's not just between husband and wife or parents and children. It's, it is in households. It's in communities of faith like this. It's in societies and it's in nations. On the 5th of December 2013, um, the president, uh, who was then the president of my nation, South Africa, Nelson Mandela, died. And uh, his, his face was pasted in, we go to the next slide, thanks, Fred, all over the newspapers around the world. They called him an icon, a colossus, and he was all of those things. He was an extraordinary man. But the thing that marked him out, I think even for the world when they looked at him, was the power of forgiveness in his life. And the truth is that you don't have to be a believer to forgive other people. Amen. We, we know others that are not Christians that are actually incredible in, in their ability to forgive others. And if they, if they are going to have any sort of life, they need to learn how to do this. There are also people that aren't Christians that are that are amazingly generous or amazingly courageous or amazingly loving or compassionate. And it's wonderful that God seeds all of us with that, but the Christian should exemplify this more than anybody else. So if the unbeliever can be forgiving, we have, we have to be forgiving people. And um, it shouldn't be that as we break bread together, as we're going to do in a moment, that we sit there with resentment in our heart towards anybody else. We don't come to this table with unforgiveness in our hearts because we're not demonstrating that gospel. In Matthew 18, there's a, the parable of the unmerciful servant. How many of you have read that parable before, the unmerciful servant? Like I'm really hoping those are not the hands that actually represent how many people have read the book of Matthew. We should all have read the book of Matthew at least once. And so if you have, you've probably come across the parable even if you don't remember it. Read your Bible. Okay, that's a really good idea. But Matthew 18 tells a story about a servant that comes before a king. We sang about our king, Jesus, you are our king. And actually, whenever we come across a king in the New Testament or in a parable of Jesus, it normally is pointing to God or to Jesus himself. And so the servant comes into the, the presence of the king. He owes the king an extraordinary amount of money. I mean, I don't know, they actually give an amount of, of money, but it's, it's like, it all's relative, eh? I tell you, um, if I was two million dirham in debt, for example, I would have sleepless nights and I would suck my thumb as I try to fall asleep at night. I would be so anxious about it. I, I don't know how I would live with that kind of debt. For you, that might be ah, two million. That's nothing. If it was two billion, that would be something. So whatever the number is, that it's just like you will never pay it back in a lifetime of lifetimes. You're never going to pay the money back. And the weight of it bears down upon you. You know, like when every part of your life is gripped by that debt. Like you can't start a new business. You can't do anything because you know you owe this money and it hangs over you like a death sentence. And he's brought before the king and the king says to him, you know, I need my money back. He says, I can't pay it. He says, well, then I'm, I'm throwing you into prison to be tortured until such time as the money can be paid. And the guy begs for mercy. He's like, he's like king, like, I'm, I'm, I'm a 
please have mercy upon me. I'm, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I'm, I'm, I'm without hope. I can only throw myself at your mercy. I'm begging you. And the king is compassionate and has mercy on this man and releases him, wipes the debt out like this. Isn't that extraordinary? And you would think this guy coming out of the king's courts would be like, like he's floating on clouds. He's walking like this, you know. Like everything's rainbows and stars and like, and everybody sees, oh, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you like this. That's how we expect him to come out. But instead he comes out and he sees a man as he walks out the door that owes him 50 dirham or 100 dirham or 5,000 dirham or whatever the number is like this. And he grabs him by the collar and he says, hey, you owe me money. Friends, he's just been released from the most extraordinary debt a man could live under. And he grabs him, this small-minded, small-hearted man, and he grabs him and says, I want my money. He says, I can't pay it right now, but I'll get it to you. I'm, I'm convinced I'll get it to you. He says, no, no. And he throws the man and his family into prison until the debt can be paid. And the servants, Jesus says, hear about this, and they go to the king, and they say, say this is what happened. And the king calls him back in, and he says, what? After what I did for you, would you do this? To, would, would you be so unforgiving, so ungracious, so unkind to do this to somebody else that owes you such a small debt? I heard a story, from, it was, I read it in the newspaper some years ago, about a situation that took place in India. There was a man, a relatively wealthy man, that was driving his car, and he drove over a bridge in one of the canals in the city they were in like this. And as he drove up onto the bridge, there was a scooter coming this way with a, a mother and a father, and the mother was holding a small baby in her arms, and he pulled the car in front of them and blocked them off like this. And he climbed out the car, and he started having an argument with this man because he owed him some money. He was obviously a poor man, the man on the scooter, didn't have much wealth, whereas this other man was a rich man. And, he, and the argument grew so vociferous, and the, the, the man just couldn't pay the money back. He couldn't give it to him there and then, that he, he snatched the baby out of the mother's arms and threw the baby off the bridge like this, and the baby died. And the sense of horror and revulsion we feel when we hear that story is how we should feel when we hear about a man who has forgiven what he was forgiven and walks out the door and will not forgive somebody else. And Jesus is teaching us that for us not to give forgiveness to somebody, no matter what it is that they have done to us, is to not understand what we have been forgiven by God. You see, we often think that our sin, like we were pretty close, like God, I just missed the mark by this much, but I acknowledge I needed Jesus as much as everybody else. But but, but I only missed it by this. It's not like the other guy who missed it by this much. You know, like if Hitler were to get saved, man, like his forgiveness would be huge. But I'm, I'm not as good as Mother Teresa, but I'm just a little bit behind her, Lord. You know what I mean? Like, like, like I could almost have got to heaven by myself, but I just need a little help over the line like this. Friends, when God looks down, he doesn't see a difference between Mother Teresa and Hitler's righteousness. The wickedness, the most wicked person and the most righteous person are both as far away have fallen as far from the, from the glory of God as the next person. We need His um, forgiveness in our lives. And so, as I said at the, heart, at the start, there's this quote that this is a hard word. And I love how it continues. It says, but it is also a cleansing word that cuts through all our flimsy excuses and leads us to a, a fountain of grace where we can be healed and made whole. Our God freely forgave us while we were His enemies. Can we not do for others what He has done for us? us. Say two things and I'll land, okay? One is um, forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciling. We can forgive people. It doesn't mean that we're always going to be reconciled to them, okay? Forgiveness is not the same also as approving someone's sin. 
We don't approve the sin when we forgive the sin that somebody has committed. I, um, I think one of the things that we've got to come to grips with is an understanding of how terrible sin actually is. See, it was because of our sin that Christ had to go to the cross. This is no trivial matter that the Lord is dealing with. And so when somebody sins against me and I forgive them, I'm not saying, actually, your sins, no, I actually approve of your sin. Like, I hate the sin. I hate it. I hate injustice. I hate adultery. I hate, um, I, hate, I hate sin, but I don't even remotely hate it as much as God hates it. And not because he's Puritan, because in his, it is offense to his very nature, because God is pure, he hates impurity. Because God is just, he hates injustice. For God is compassion, he hates hatred. And so God in his perfection is against those things. And so when we forgive, we're not giving approval to it. Any sin that is forgiven, that we forgive, as, that, is, that will be um, released by the Father, is paid for in the body of Jesus Christ. And so we're not doing that. But we, but we, have, to, um, we have to let go of the hatred. We have to let go of that desire in us to make somebody hurt as much as I was hurt. Or worse than that is when we think to ourselves, well, I'm better than that person. And uh, so actually when I forgive them, uh, or if I hold it back, I'm saying, well, they're just not good enough people. And so we have to come to this place of, of um, settling in our hearts that we are them except for the grace of God. Like I've received this incredible release of my debt. They have a debt as well to me, but also to God. And only God's grace can release them from that as well. The difference between us is the grace of God, not something I've done. And so while it is difficult, we can and we must choose to forgive. Our prayer might be something like this. God, I choose to forgive this man or this woman, even though some parts of my soul desire revenge and revolt at the idea, I do choose mercy. I'm asking you that you would take my mind and my heart on a journey by the power of your Holy Spirit so that in time I will feel this forgiveness fully. But today I choose to set them free and to walk in freedom myself. Nelson Mandela, when he walked out of prison um, in 1992, 1990, whatever it was, I think it was 1990, when he walked out of prison, he said these words. He said, as I walked out the door towards my freedom, I knew that if I did not leave all the anger, hatred, and bitterness behind, that I would still be in prison. He understood something, that the, that the forgiveness is not just about us setting other people free, but forgiveness is about setting ourselves free as well. There's a psychologist by the name of um, Larry Phillips. He's, a, he's not a Christian as far as I know. In fact, I think he's a New Age psychologist. And yet his, his observations of what happens when we don't forgive, when we live with judgment or criticism or unforgiveness, um, are, is a litany of, of disaster. I just want to read a few of them to you. I'll, I'll put them up on the slide, the slide before. Thanks, Fred. It says, if we, if we don't forgive, we continue to feel the psychological pain of the perceived offense. We block healthy communication and potential reconciliation with the offender. We perceive similar offenses by others who remind us of the offender. And this one I find amazing because this is a spiritual truth I, that he would pick this up. We attract similar situations, people, and injuries to ourselves. Number five, we give up our personal power to others to determine how we feel and respond in similar situations. I'll jump to number seven. You can read the ones in between. We, t we take added toxic neg negativity into our present relationships. If you don't forgive that person, even these other relationships are affected. We isolate, prevent, avoid, and limit ourselves from having new, more healthy, and more fulfilling relationships. We become vulnerable and, be and spiteful. Oh, 
vulnerable to becoming spiteful, resentful, and bitter. 11, we block ourselves spiritually from receiving help and healing from our higher source. And number 12, our own spirits and souls shrivel up more and more. Shriveled souls is not what working out your salvation looks like. Shriveled souls is not the abundant life that Jesus came to give us, nor the freedom that he won for us. And shriveled souls is not the kingdom of peace, joy, and righteousness that is promised to us. And we've got to let these things go. I want the team that are handing out the elements, please, to pass those around now. We're going to break bread together. But I just want you to get, give me your attention for a moment as I prepare us for what we're going to do as we break bread. Friends, I want to ask you a few questions. Are you holding a grudge against anyone? Are you harboring bitterness against any other person? How's this one? Are you talking too much and too often about what others have done to you? And have you truly forgiven those closest to you who have hurt you deeply? I was reading through 1 Corinthians 11 this morning, funny enough. And I come to this part here Paul's talking about the breaking of bread. And um, he says this in verse 28. He says, let a person examine himself. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So first, he says, examine yourself. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This is not talking about final judgment over our lives. This is talking about God looking at a situation and saying, this is wrong. Some people say, well, the Lord doesn't judge us. He doesn't judge us in that He puts us under condemnation. But He does judge us in the sense that the Holy Spirit brings a conviction, a shining of the light upon our sins so that we can deal with it. And the reason why I used to spank my children was not because I just, like, I was mad and they just deserved, like, they made me feel bad by their noise or their disobedience. I'm going to make them feel bad. That wasn't why. I love my, I would, I would literally, literally lay my life down for my children. I mean that. Like, not, not a hesitation in my mind. I love them more than I love my own life, and I disciplined them so that they would have fullness. And the Father disciplines us so that we might have fullness, so that we will not be stand in condemnation at the end. And so as we come to this table, which Paul says that it was the, the meal that Jesus had before he went to the cross, and it says on the night that he did this, he, he broke the bread. And he passed it around to the disciples, and he said to them, he said, this is my body given for you. And it all goes back again to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It goes back to a reminder that we, um, we eat from the one loaf, that we are one body of believers together, and that we're going to drink from the cup. And he says, this is the cup of the new covenant. And the, it's, a, it's, the, it's a cup, it's, the wine is the blood of Jesus. That's the basis of our covenant. It's the blood of Jesus. It's not our agreement. It's something tangible that took place on the cross. Jesus died. His blood literally flowed. And His blood which knew no sin, 
was not conceived in sin, had no sin inherited from his father, becomes a basis on which our sin is forgiven, and we are drawn into this new covenant. And, and what Paul's saying is, when you do this, like think about what you're doing. And if you need to come to the table today and confess some sin and break some cycle, don't think like, well, I've confessed it before. Like, come again, come again, come again. Invite the Holy Spirit to bring a deep sense of godly sorrow to your life that this thing that you've cycled in. Because some of us haven't come to the place of godly sorrow yet. We wish we'd, we weren't doing it, but we actually quite enjoy it or we, we've, we've kept it covered up or we're blaming somebody else or we're rationalizing it. We've just got to, Lord, I'm, I'm so sorry. I recognize that I've been looking at the sin through my eyes instead of through your eyes. And I just want to bring it before you today as, as I break bread now and ask you to come deal with it. And that actually, as I do, that you're going to do a powerful work in me. Some of you need to forgive other people. Maybe this, small, this afternoon you are carrying offense or unforgiveness towards somebody. I had a lady send me a message after the first meeting. She said, um, God woke up this morning with such a, a sense that she needed to forgive somebody that she had, like, had hurt her years ago. And she woke up and she said, and she actually sent a text to the person. She, she, had, she said, I thought I'd forgiven them, but I felt like a conviction of God that I hadn't and I needed to release them. And, and so she, she, dealt, she did what she needed to do. And then she came to church this morning and God brought this word. And maybe some of you are holding onto something. And you've tried before to forgive and you've actually said those words, I forgive you. But you, in your heart of hearts, there's something there that still remains. And this morning, the Lord wants to set you free from that prison. Last thing I want to ask is, some of you, you're offended by God. He hasn't done what He said He would do, you think, in your mind. He hasn't, he hasn't done it in time. He hasn't given you what He promised to give you. He's let you down. You, you, you've been hurt. Maybe you've been victimized. You're like, God, where were you in the midst of that thing? We can't forgive God because He doesn't sin. It's impossible for us to be able to forgive Him. But as we come to the table, we need to deal with that offense that we're carrying. And sometimes that's true even with other people. It's not that somebody's actually hurt us. It's just that we've picked up an offense. We've misunderstood a situation. We've misrepresented the timing of something. I've got this thought in my mind, and so I'm just going to share it just out of obedience. I read a book once by Jeffrey Archer called Cain and Abel. And in this book, it's about two, brothers, two men that compete with each other in business. And they, they get into competition, and there's a hatred that develops between them. Um, one day, one man, in a desperate situation, there's a breakthrough that comes for him, and his business succeeds massively. And he, he, he spends his life getting back at this other man that he hates. And only after that man dies does he find out that it was that other man that gave the money that he needed to start his own business. And sometimes we don't see everything. We don't see the whole picture with God. And we've got to hold on to those things that we know to be true, that He is good and He is loving and He is kind and He is just and He's working all things for the good of those who love Him.